Welcome to Pharma Talk Radio. I'm Kate Woda, producer of the show. Pharma Talk Radio is a nonprofit program to disseminate helpful information to those in life sciences, and in particular drug development. And this, of course, always includes patient advocacy communities. When I am not working with Pharma Talk Radio, I head up content and direction for Immuno Oncology 360 and Rational Combinations 360 at the Conference Forum. For more information on these events, please visit www.theconferenceforum.org. Today's show features a talk previously delivered by Dr. Jeffrey Weber, Deputy Director of the Laura and Isaac Perlmutter Cancer Center and Co-Director of the Melanoma Program and Head of Experimental Therapeutics for NYU Langone Medical Center. Dr. Weber presented on Balancing Benefit and Toxicity from Immunotherapeutics at the 5th Annual Immuno-Oncology 360 2018 program, where he discussed the clinical implications of the day-to-day management of and the science around I.O. adverse events that may help understand how these drugs work. Good morning. I'm uh, Jeff Weber. I'm a medical oncologist at NYU Langone Health, and I'm the deputy director of that cancer center, the Perlmutter Cancer Center. And most people in the audience, I think, uh, don't directly take care of patients, so I'm going to give you a view of what it's like to have to deal with some of the side effects of these patients. I think everyone is probably aware of the good news, how effective these drugs are. The cliche is whenever you see an article about immuno-oncology development, it's, it's, it's revolutionized oncology, it's done this, it's done that. So I don't think you need to hear about uh, all the efficacy data, although we could talk about that, I suppose. But what I'm going to do is to talk about how we deal with the patients and, and, and think about how we manage the side effects. I always am obligated by the lawyers to show my uh, disclosures. The bottom line is probably the most important one. Actually, it's the only time in the U.S. I've had a round of applause. Usually in Western Europe, you get a round of applause. Anyway, so to, to business. What, what makes immuno-oncology drugs, as we use them, primarily checkpoint inhibitors, but many others, what makes them unique? And there are really two things. The way the tumors respond, so that's tumor response kinetics, which is at the bottom, and I'm not going to spend any more time on that, but I think most of us would agree, and actually Axel was one of the people who developed the concept and published it, that there's this immune-related response criteria that has to be completely revamped to decide that patients do benefit and how they benefit. But that's another issue. I'm going to talk about what's on the top, which is the immune-related adverse events, which early on in the development of these drugs, literally I think it was the end of 2001 when I first started using ipilimumab. I was one of the first. And you initially began to realize there were some very strange side effects that occurred when you used these drugs, that things occurred that would not normally be seen in the state of nature. So you basically enhance immune function, but of course the flip side is you get these unusual auto-inflammatory side effects that you frankly would not otherwise have seen. And the questions I get most frequently asked by either consulting docs or by the patients are based on the toxicity of these drugs, who should get the combination, which based on recent data would suggest that there's more benefit in general to giving combinations of drugs like ipilimumab and nivolumab or ipi and pembro versus a single agent or a single agent in a clinical trial like pembro or nevo plus another drug. How do you decide whether they're getting the big guns with a 55% rate of grade three, four side effects or whether they get a single drug with a maybe 15% rate of such side effects? And in some patients, you can justify the added toxicity of giving ipilimumab and nivolumab. 
but not in everyone. If I look at a patient and they're over 75 and a little fragile, if they have pre-existing autoimmune syndromes, even burnt-out rheumatoid arthritis, especially if they have active autoimmune disease, and if they don't have low-volume soft tissue subcutaneous nodal disease, I may not be that enthused about giving them these drugs. And if they're pdl one positive, you can do probably just as well with a single PD-1 blocking agent or an agent plus experimental drug X as you can with the P plus Nevo and avoid the toxicity. So I used to think that pdl one staining in melanoma was a waste of time. I'm now thinking, well, maybe we should think about that when we're torn between giving someone really toxic combinations and a much less toxic single agent. And again, most of the benefit, if you look at the recent New England Journal article from Jed Walchok, most of the benefit of combination toxic checkpoint inhibition goes to the pdl one negative population. So you have to think about that. And then the other question I'm very frequently asked by doctors, of course, and sometimes the patients, is after you have some of these really bad side effects, can you restart the drug? What if someone's benefiting? It's very difficult to tell someone, well, we're stopping after three doses. I know you're having great regression of your tumor, but uh, sorry, you had this bad side effect, so we're not going to give you any more treatment. And the answer is there's a guy in Australia named Alex Menzies. Uh, there's been a couple of other recent articles by other investigators who've published um, reviews and other articles suggesting that, amazingly, if someone recovers from an immune-related adverse event that's a high-grade event, hepatitis, severe colitis, if you wait long enough, treat them with steroids and let them recover, amazingly, in many cases, you can retreat them safely. You will also have a significant risk of reinducing some side effects, but generally, amazingly, you can get away with it. And again, the rate of dose-limiting side effects, meaning you have to stop again, is only about one in three. So that means that the majority of patients who would be benefiting who had side effects could probably continue. So judiciously, you can continue, but I wouldn't give them ipilimumab. I wouldn't give them ipi plus nevo. I would just give them a PD-1 blocking or a PD-L1 blocking agent alone. So what are these immune-related adverse events, these IRAEs? Essentially, you're losing tolerance to your self-antigens. And you see these inflammatory T-cell infiltrates in your tissues, not all tissues. Usually, it's very restricted. And again, most of them are mild to moderate, virtually, virtually, not all, but virtually all are reversible with the use of steroids. But if you don't manage them right, it can be life-threatening, and it represents essentially a new sort of oncologic emergency. And the big deal, as I'll show you in the next couple of slides, is often they go to the emergency room, and you have to deal with the fact that the ER docs don't see this that much. We, the oncologists, see it all the time, but the ER docs often are completely clueless. So no criticism meant of the ER docs. It's just not fair to them to be able to understand the etiology and the sort of the pathophysiology of this. Most of these IREs occur early. We give cycles generally of 12 weeks of immunotherapy. Most of them, not all of them, will occur in the first 12 weeks. I've seen one immune-related adverse event at month 47 on an unusual maintenance trial, but that's way out there. Most patients have this occur in the first three months. And prolonged steroid tapers are required. First time I ever saw such a patient was the end of 01, and I gave him a two-week course of steroids, and that was a real screw-up, big mistake. After the patient got from 60 to 30 of prednisone, all of his symptoms came back. He ended up in the hospital, and I'm not dumb. I, got, I learned the lesson very quickly from that one patient that you don't give him a brief course of steroids. You start high, and you taper over a long period of time. 
And again, could you have predicted any of these side effects from animal models? And the answer is not really. If you look at CTLA-4 knockouts, you know, you, you enhance depigmentation in melanoma models, you know, big deal. That's not a severe side effect. If you look at PD-1 knockouts or genetic deletions, you can see late glomerulonephritis, sometimes arthritis, which frankly generally are not that big an issue in humans, so you can't really predict any of this from your animal models. And the other thing, question, the other question I always get from docs and patients is, oh my God, I haven't had any side effects. Does that mean the drug is not working? And the answer is no. There is a, uh, a modest statistically significant association between seeing grade two, three, four immune-related adverse events and outcome for IPI plus NEVO, for NEVO or PEMBRO alone, and for some of the other PDL1 drugs, but it's a pretty weak association and it doesn't help you. Yes, is it interesting statistically, scientifically? Sure. But if the patient says, oh, I didn't get any side effects, that means I'm going to do poorly. That's absurd. And if they get the side effects, it's hardly a guarantee they're going to do well. Interestingly, if you look at some data buried in a recent article in the New England Journal, if you look at the GI side effects of combination immunotherapy, the patients who get the GI side effects survive a little bit longer than those who don't. So yes, the answer is there is some association. It is relatively weak, and as yet we do not understand why that happens. The kinetics are classic. This was published in 2012, and it's a stylized graph. It's not actually to scale in the sense that in the ordinate you get, or the area under the curve does not exactly reflect the number of events. It's just stylized, and what it says is in red, the skin stuff always comes early. In blue, the diarrhea and colitis comes next. The liver stuff comes after that, and then late comes the endocrine side effects, and that gray line doesn't go back to normal because once you inflame and and compromise the pituitary, it may never come back. And in most patients who have inflamed pituitaries and hypophysitis, the pituitary is toasted, it's done, and they may well be on lifelong hormone replacement. If you look at the updated, and again, this is now three, four years later, same kind of kinetics for PD-1 blockade in melanoma. Now you see that the, the curves are all different size because it accurately reflects the amount of patients who get those side effects. And same thing, skin comes first, and it lasts for a fair amount of time. Then comes the GI. Then now you're seeing pulmonary, which you didn't see much with ipilimumab. And then later comes kidney, which you also didn't see that much with ipi. And then now the gray, the endocrine, comes back to the baseline because now we count recovery to normal performance status on hormone replacement as recovery. Does the pituitary function? No. But does the patient feel well? Yes. And if you look at listing of side effects, and again, I'm not going to spend much time on this. If you look at the left-hand column, you'll see if you look at grade 3, 4 under IPI plus NEVO, you see a lot of side effects. You see 14% having high-grade GI side effects. You see 18% having hepatic side effects. Added up, it's 55 to 60% of the patients will have some serious side effects. If you look at NEVO in the middle, grade 3, 4, we're looking at maybe 10% at most. So obviously, single drugs, single PD-1 drugs are a lot safer and easier to administer than combinations. General principles, I point out that second bullet point. Ironically, Yesterday, I spent an hour talking to the medical director of our emergency room, which is a very good ER. It's probably the best ER in New York City. And why was I meeting with them? Because they had mishandled patients who came into the ER 
who had immune-related adverse events and they just didn't do the job right. Was anyone's life threatened? No, but that's not the point. They, they just didn't understand what had to be done. So I spent an hour hammering out sort of a, 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 an MO by which the ER docs would have regular education, Video, we, have, we made videotapes about these side effects. I'll come to talk to them every six months. We'll have in-services, and we'll have a general way of managing this that will familiarize the ER docs. Does that mean the TISH ER is a bad ER? No, it's just a typical, actually very good ER. Around the United States and in talking to my colleagues in Western Europe, Canada, Australia, everywhere, same problem. ER docs don't have a clue. And the oncologists see this all the time, but the ER docs don't. So it's a real problem. And you have to educate the patients, you have to educate the docs, and you have to educate the ER docs. And you have to have knowledge of the algorithms for managing this. And you also have to have something like this. We give the patient a little variation on this. It's a little card for the wallet. And when they get to the ER, we tell them, if you have to go to the emergency room, pull this out and show this to the docs there. And it just says, hey, just to remind you, I'm getting immunotherapy. And you can see the following conditions, pneumonitis, colitis, et cetera. And it actually prompts them to remember. And they go online. And they can very quickly learn a lot. And some of them actually have little uh, drives with some of the algorithms and the information. Although I will say, even when they show them the drives, that doesn't mean that the ER docs who are very busy will actually look at it. But the key thing is, we need to get the call. And that was the main plan I made with the ER, that it's the experienced docs who treat the patients who need to get a phone call when these patients show up in the emergency room. And again, when you're treating these patients, you have, this is classic medicine. It goes back 40 some odd years to when I was a medical student. I was always taught to keep an open mind and to have a differential diagnosis. So again, in medicine, one of the biggest problems is a patient presents to you with a certain constellation of symptoms and you have tunnel vision. You say, oh. Uh, gee, you have a diarrhea, there's a little blood, a little fever. Uh, you must have diverticulitis. Okay, well, if you're getting Ipi and Nevo and you just got your last dose a week ago, maybe it's not diverticulitis. Maybe it's colitis or maybe it's Clostridium difficile. So the key is making a differential diagnosis. And there are probably plenty of physicians in the room. So again, this is basic medicine 101. I mean, this is like third year of medical school. But uh, this is what you relearn. So the beauty of dealing with these drugs is you essentially have to relearn internal medicine. Um, and you have to know the management algorithms which have been published. And there are now all kinds of, uh, and before we get to the specifics, there are all kinds of guidelines. ESMO issued guidelines last year. There's a new SITSI ASCO set of guidelines. So all these things can be looked at online so the ER docs can access them. And even though there's no guarantee that the busy ER doc is going to look at them online, at least we know these and we are able to teach them. So very briefly, what happens to patients who get these drugs? Well, they get things like dermatitis and rashes. And that's the most common side effect. It happens very quickly. And you have to be vigilant because if you have a little rash that covers 10% of your body, fine. But we have seen patients who had rashes ignored. You essentially had a whole body rash, and it turned into toxic epidermal necrolysis, or something called Stevens-Johnson syndrome. And you can die from that, because you break down the epithelial barrier, and you can die of infection. And weirdly, it turns out that in multiple publications that are independent, one from my group when I was at Moffitt in Florida, and one from Adil Dowd, who's at UCSF, if you give these drugs to melanoma patients and you see vitiligo and rashes, those are the patients who do well. So this is the one place where there's an obvious association between having a side effect, 
and doing well. And for vitiligo, everyone would accept that that's an immune reaction against your melanocytes. So in a melanoma patient, that's not a surprise. It does not happen in lung or kidney cancer. That is a melanoma phenomenon. In other cancers, there's a pretty loose association between any side effect and doing well. And the rashes can be pretty ugly. Here's an old publication which shows a beautiful indication of an erythematous maculopapular rash. It's always on the trunk, almost always spares the face. It can be on the legs. It can be really nasty. And if you do a biopsy, you see tons of lymphocytes at the dermal epidermal junction. They don't belong there. And this is the drug. And again, if you have mild rashes, we don't stop the drug. We treat them with moisturizing agents, topical steroids. If they escalate to grade two, which is like 30% of the body surface area, then we get a little more aggressive. We may hold the drug. And there's a lot of value to just delaying a patient a week. Sometimes you can see things calm down completely. We give these medium-strength topical steroids to the itchy areas. And you always ask the patient, are you kept up at night by itching? If they are, that means it's escalating to grade two or even more. And if you have a grade three rash, which is not so uncommon, you'll hold the drug, you generally won't discontinue the immunotherapy. With rashes, you give them a brief course of steroids, almost everybody gets better, and you're actually able to continue the treatment. And amazingly, the rash may not return. That's what's bizarre. The stuff that keeps us up at night, however, is the GI stuff, and it's colitis and diarrhea. And again, diarrhea is very common with IPI. It is very common with IPI plus Nevo. It is less common, thank goodness, with PD-1 and PD-L1 drugs. And again, these patients can get incredibly sick. I mean, you can go from feeling fine on Tuesday to having 20 diarrheas on Wednesday. And the patients are caught unaware. Often they'll delay calling. They won't think that it's that bad. And all of a sudden they realize, oh, my goodness, I'm going to the bathroom like every 20 minutes. And they'll call us up. And they get sent to the emergency room where they get brought into the clinic to get hydrated. And again, if you do a colonoscopy, it looks pretty ugly. And that colon was fine a couple of days ago. But it is now, I think I have a picture, ugly, friable, ulcerated, and it's just horrendous. And if you don't manage this right, if you are not all over this, this can lead to perforation, obstruction. And I've seen one patient who had toxic megacolon where the colon is grossly dilated. And when that happens, you don't recover quickly. That patient was actually on total parenteral nutrition for six months. And he actually got better. And he actually had a complete response to his treatment. But I've seen some horrendous GI manifestations, almost always caused by the patient delaying calling you and coming to the physician. And again, it's uncontrollable diarrhea, not responsive to the usual Imodi or Melomatil. And you have to rush in there with steroids very quickly or else you're going to see a perforation. If you do it right, the patients do well. And you don't wait too long because many of these patients will not get better quickly with steroids. If they come in on Wednesday with severe diarrhea and on Friday they're not getting a lot better and the diarrhea is not almost gone, we get suspicious and we talk to them on Saturday because if they're not back to one or zero diarrheas by Saturday, they get called in and they get the TNF-blocking antibody infliximab. And we will pull the trigger on that drug very quickly. Our institution hates it because it's a very expensive drug. And if you're in the hospital and you're on a, a DRG sort of thing, um, 
I suspect they'll probably lose money. So actually, our institution is very careful about how we use it. But it can be an amazing life-saving drug. You can go from looking like you need to be in the ICU to walking out of the hospital 24 hours after a dose of infliximab. And the patients always say the same thing. Oh, it was like a miracle. I felt so much better. And that obviously tells you that TNF levels are somehow strongly implicated in the toxicity here. And I've had patients who've been on TPN for months. I've had patients who required a diverting ileostomy. You really have to work on this, and this requires familiarity. Um, if you have early-grade diarrhea, which is up to like four diarrheas in a day, you have to rule out the usual Clostridium difficile, parasitic infections. And even if they have Clostridium difficile, we treat that, and we assume that they have immune-related diarrhea. And again, if you continue to have diarrhea, even if it's three a day, two a day, and it just keeps going and going, we'll just give them steroids as if it was a high-grade event. High-grade means seven diarrheas or more a day. And grade four is you're in the hospital, you're having bloody diarrhea, or you need surgery. That's bad. And again, we give big-time doses of steroids, two milligrams per kilograms of methylprednisolone, and then we taper it slowly. The slow taper can be anywhere from one month to two and a half months. And again, if the patients don't get better quickly, we pull the trigger and give them infliximab. And for us, it's great. Actually, it was developed at NYU. Uh, we're accused of conflict of interest because NYU still gets royalties from the development of the drug. But uh, this is very tricky because patients can also develop GI issues and not even have diarrhea. And recently, there was a patient who came in with severe belly pain who was sent home from the ER because his CAT scan was normal and he didn't have diarrhea. Well, it turned out he had small bowel enteritis. Inflaming your small bowel doesn't cause diarrhea necessarily. So he got sent home from the ER, came back the next day to see us, and he still had belly pain. And he was told to go see the uh, GI doc the next morning and have a colonoscopy. And we said, it's all right, you don't need a colonoscopy. You need some steroids. Here, have some steroids. So we gave him 60 of Salumedrol, and two hours later his pain went away and he felt fine. So you have to keep an open mind. And again, this is the picture. This is an ugly-looking colon. I mean, this is really ulcerated. It's bleeding. It's friable. And again, if you do a biopsy, it always comes back the same thing. It's eosinophils, focal active cryptitis, CD4 and CD8 T cells, and that's just bad news, and you need to jump on that and give them big-time steroids. The other thing that keeps us up is hepatitis, which is a weird phenomenon. And again, if you see liver function abnormalities going up, it could be other drugs that the patients are taking. It could be infection. It could be sepsis. So you have to keep an open mind. And again, these patients may have classic inflammation of the liver, right upper quadrant pain, fevers, or they may feel fine. Classic situation. Patient feels perfectly fine, comes in, is expecting their dose of drug. And you call them into the office or into the exam room and say, oh, by the way, your labs just came back and your AST, ALT are off the wall, we can't give you your treatment, and they're wondering why, because they feel fine. You don't treat someone whose AST, ALT are 10 or 15 times normal. So uh, you have to have the liver functions checked every time you treat someone. You can't just blow it off. And the usual guideline is, oh, well, if your AST, ALT are two and a half times the upper limit of normal, yeah, we'll go ahead and treat. I've gotten a little gun shy in my old age. If someone has LFTs, that were normal three weeks ago, and they come in for a dose of Pembro, and now it's 2.2 times normal, I'm not going to treat them. I'm going to say, look, we don't have a straight line here. We have one point that's abnormal. I don't know if that line's going up 
going down or stabilizing. So we'll have you come back in two days, and if your liver functions are better, we'll treat you. If they are the same or worse, we are stopping. We're not stopping, we're holding. And then if they still stay up, we're going to give you a course of steroids. So you have to be very careful. At any rate, if the liver functions then keep sneaking up, you got to start checking them very frequently every couple of days. You don't give them treatment, and you need to start thinking about other causes, and generally you're going to give them some steroids. Do you have to give them big-time steroids? Not necessarily. You might give them a three-week course. But if it's grade three, four, where the bilirubin may go up and the liver functions are like five to ten times normal, you take it very seriously. You can kill somebody if you treat them when their liver functions are, are going up and are high. You give them big-time steroids, uh, and if they don't get better, you don't give them that TNF drug, the infliximab, because infliximab itself causes hepatic toxicity. You give them mycophenolic acid, which is a drug that no oncologist would normally use in his right mind. Mycophenolic acid is used as an anti-rejection drug by liver transplant, lung transplant, kidney transplant docs. But we've learned how to use it because it's a potent immunosuppressant. And you use mycophenolic acid, it can work wonders. And the weird thing about the liver stuff is it can just linger. I had a patient whose liver functions were up and up and up and down for eight months. And I told them, we just cannot treat you. I do not trust this. And I, we did a liver biopsy, and they had chronic inflammation, lymphocytes infiltrating into the liver. It was not the typical appearance of toxic hepatitis from drugs, where you see something called ballooning degeneration, where you have literal destruction of the hepatocytes. It was a lymphocytic infiltrate. And you take this stuff seriously, because until it calms down, you don't treat the patient. The thing that confuses us is the endocrinopathies. And again, thyroid dysfunction is very common. Hypopituitarism, which essentially doesn't exist in the state of nature outside the use of these drugs. Pancreatitis, which is, thank goodness, rare. Adrenal insufficiency and diabetes. And now you can take a young person, usually a 35-year-old, who on Sunday felt fine and had a normal sugar, and on Wednesday they can be in diabetic ketoacidosis um, because they got treated on Monday and it just caused an explosion of inflammatory infiltrates into the pancreas and destroyed the islets. So you got to take glucose is going up very seriously. And again, the thyroid stuff is very shockingly common. The more we monitor the T4-TSH, the more we see. And we've gotten extremely paranoid. Uh, and the patients are always wondering, why are you checking all these bloods? And the answer is because thyroid dysfunction is quite common. And we'll often see the TSH go up a little bit, the T4 go down a little bit, and the patient is fine, and we'll just ignore it. Because sometimes it'll just resolve on its own. But if the TSH keeps going up and the T4 keeps going down, or if both T4 and TSH go down, that means it's pituitary, it's central, then we treat the patients and we give them Synthroid. And again, you can see hyperthyroidism, then hypothyroidism, just like in the textbook that's called Hashimoto's thyroiditis. You inflame the thyroid, the thyroid burns out reproducibly three weeks later, and then they develop hypothyroidism. And this is something that most medical students only see in the textbook. We literally see this, I don't know, once every two months. Uh, and it's amazing because they, a patient will present with uh, rapid heart rate, sweating, and anxiety, and you'll start thinking, oh man, I bet they have hyperthyroidism and they'll turn out to have hyperthyroidism, and you bring them back two weeks later, and they're beginning to get fatigued, and you take them off the beta blocker, you put them on to calm things down, and then the thyroid totally burns out, and then the next week they need synthroid replacement. So it's classic, but you have to be looking for it. When this, the pituitary, gets inflamed, you can have the worst headache of your life. 
and I've seen a grown man on the floor requiring IV morphine because he had the worst headache clutching his head. He just, like, couldn't stand it. And we basically put him to sleep for a day or two and put him in the hospital. Um, somehow the pituitary going from 7 to 12 millimeters does something to a sensory nerve tract, and it causes the worst headache of your life. When that happens, you give him steroids, you put him in the hospital, you give him morphine, and they'll get better, but it's, uh, it's horrendous. And the problem is, you have a cancer patient with a, the worst headache of their life, what's your first thought? It's they have brain metastases. So they all get an MRI, and then the radiologist calls you and says, well, I have good news and bad news. The good news is there's no brain metastases. The bad news is the pituitary looks pretty weird, and weird means it's all inflamed. And when that happens, you give them some serious steroids, and they will get better. Um, but you don't continue the drugs immediately. You hold the drugs. You treat the patient. You get them off steroids. You replace the hormones you need to, the corticosteroids or the synthroid. And then you can continue. Because most of the time, once you inflame the pituitary, it's done. That function is not going to come back. And if you think the patient is benefiting from the treatment, it is okay to continue. Obviously, it's the patient's choice. But faced with tumor regression after only a couple of doses of drug, most patients will say, yeah, I want to continue, absolutely. And the problem is the patients will feel fine. They'll be on Synthroid and corticosteroid replacement. You have to remind them if they get sick, they have to go up on the steroids. And if they end up in a car accident or if they get a urinary infection, you have to give them stress doses of steroids. And a lot of oncologists aren't thinking like that because they're not endocrinologists. And I send every such patient to the endocrinologist. So when I was at Moffitt, we had an endocrinologist in our cancer hospital who was just incredibly bored because he didn't have much to do. After we started using these drugs, he was so swamped they had to hire a second person. So really, we make a lot of work for the endocrinologist. He was kind of like the Maytag repairman. He would just like sit around waiting for a phone call. Because he didn't, this guy didn't do diabetes. Most endocrinologists are very busy because they do diabetes, which is like an, an, there's an epidemic of it out there. But this guy was a straight endocrinologist, not diabetic. And he uh, became a real expert at this, and he was very good at it. Um, diabetes is bad news. If you develop type 1 diabetes with these drugs, that's it. You are going to be diabetic probably for the rest of your life. And this can be devastating. This happens often in young people. The good news is it's not very common. It's less than 1%. And it doesn't happen much with ipilimumab. It happens more with PD-1 drugs or IPI plus Nevo. And again, it can happen any time. And if this happens, they're seeing the endocrinologist. <clears throat> and there's no clear evidence that giving steroids will abort this. Uh, and it's a real problem. And I wish we knew who was going to be the ones, who would be those who would get this. And we have no information. We don't even know that giving the steroids helps them. And we just manage it symptomatically. And it's just a disaster. Uh, on the other hand, if you get a response, I guess it's worth it. But I've seen some young people that were put on insulin for the rest of their lives. So that's a tough one. Uh, the neurologic stuff, again, thank goodness, is not common. I've seen the spectrum. You can see anything from a peripheral neuropathy with a foot drop or um, numbness and tingling in, in an arm or a leg to myasthenia gravis, which is a very dramatic presentation. And it looks just like the stuff out of the textbook, which most internal medicine doctors or oncologists would never see. Guillain-Barre, an ascending paralysis, which again, we read about this in the textbook, or maybe you see it as a medical student, but as an oncologist, you never see it. But I've seen both. Limbic encephalitis 
where patients are completely disoriented and they'll be sitting in front of you 10 feet away, smiling and looking at you and you'll ask them what their name is and they won't even know what their name is. Or one guy was sitting that far from his wife and I said, tell me, what's the name of that lady sitting to your left? Oh, um, yeah, yeah. He didn't even remember his wife's name. So that guy ended up in the hospital for six days with a normal MRI scan of the brain, but when he had his lumbar puncture, he had 100 lymphocytes per cubic millimeter, all of which were activated lymphocytes, and he had limbic encephalitis. And he got better, and a month later came back to clinic, and he had no memory of the event. The good news for him is he was a metastatic patient who went into complete response after ipinevo, and actually five years later, he's fine, but that was a pretty dramatic event. I mean, the guy literally did not know his own name. So you can see very serious side effects. This stuff is to be taken very seriously. Anyone with a grade two neurologic toxicity or more gets admitted, and they get to see the neurologist, and it's great for the neurologist because they can come in there, make the diagnosis, and actually impact on the course of treatment because the patients will virtually all get completely, they will go back to normal, and there'll be complete resolution of the neurologic syndrome, even if it's Guillain-Barre or myasthenia gravis. And again, you've got to get a neurology consult. And for example, with myasthenia gravis, there are certain drugs and approaches that are used. With Guillain-Barre, sometimes they'll do a plasmapheresis. So you've got to go with what the neurologic consult wants. And sometimes you'll find that your preconceived notions about the T-cell nature of the immune-related adverse events is wrong, because if you have T-cells and then you plasmapherese the patient, they're not going to get better. If it's T-cell mediated, plasmapheresis won't do anything. It's just going to clear IgG and IgM. But you may see dramatic improvement with plasmapheresis. So that says, you know, Ipi, Nevo, Pembro, these drugs are not all working by a T-cell mediated mechanism. And when we have neurologic toxicity, we do a full-scale workup. Everybody gets a lumbar puncture, an MRI, and if necessary, EMGs and EEGs. And again, we give long steroid tapers because they don't get better fast. Uh, and again, if things don't get better quickly with steroids, we'll give them mycophenolic acid, and we jump on that. Uh, pneumonitis is a potentially lethal event. Uh, pneumonitis is more common in patients with lung cancer. No big surprise. They've all had chemotherapy. Most of them are smokers and or drinkers, so there's been obvious damage to the pulmonary tissue previously. So they have a 3% rate of grade 3, 4 pneumonitis. And melanoma, when you, I mean, it's generally they're not smokers. Those people have less than a 1% chance of getting grade 3, 4 pneumonitis. But that's a serious complication, and it can sneak up on you, and it can present in a weird, subtle way. And we check a pulse oximetry on every patient who comes in. It's, just, it's cheap, it's easy, it doesn't cost anything. It takes your nurse literally 30 seconds. You check a finger probe. And if anybody has a compromise or a decrease in the pulse ox, they go for an x-ray, we don't treat them. Anything suspicious on the x-ray, we hold the drug, we send them for a CT scan. And if they have abnormalities, usually a dense infiltrate in multiple lobes on a CAT scan, they're getting some big-time steroids because the pneumonitis can be very resistant to treatment. And often they'll have a superimposed infectious pneumonia, so you have to admit them and give them uh, antibiotics and give them steroids. And this just shows, if you look at the left-hand upper panel A, that is a really ugly-looking uh, chest X-ray. So these are dense infiltrates. It can be horrendous looking on a CAT scan on panel B. And if you do a biopsy, you see this huge consolidation in the alveoli. 
And then panel D is the opposite side of the coin. Often when we'll see the patient, every 12 weeks we scan them, right? I mean, you're doing this for the adjuvant patients or the, who are the ones on trials or the metastatic patients on trials always get scanned. And if you look closely at the lower left hand or on the right lung, remember the patient in panel D is flipped. Let's see if we have a thingamabobby here. Yeah. If you look over there, it's a little bit subtle, but there's this little hazy infiltrate. And the radiologist will be very careful. They'll say, hazy, indistinct uh, infiltrate consistent with infectious pneumonia, rule out tuberculosis. And you'll look at the patient who'll look great, and you'll say, what? And we have to deal with this all the time because we see these evanescent little infiltrates often in multiple lobes, and if the patient's well, has a normal pulse ox, we just ignore it. And the patients freak out about it. They look at the report online because they have all their own records, and they say, oh, my God, I have tuberculosis or infection. And you have to take time to explain to them that it's probably nothing because there often are inflammatory changes in the lungs that don't mean anything. And you have to have some good judgment as to decide when to just not worry about it and when to start getting excited. And most of the time it's nothing because then you'll tell the patient the following. You say, tell you what, we're going to get a quick interim six-week CAT scan of the chest. My prediction is it'll say the following. Previously seen uh, left lower lobe infiltrate has resolved completely with treatment, which is a lie. And there's now a new right upper lobe uh, infiltrate. And that's almost always what happens. And when that happens, the patients now trust you because they think you know what you're talking about, which generally is the case. Okay, lastly, cardiotoxicity got a lot of press last year or the year before in the New England Journal. Three patients died of severe congestive heart failure brought on by inflammatory myocarditis. And again, you can see pericarditis, you can see arrhythmias. And again, it's much higher with the combination, but look at those numbers. The likelihood is, you know, 0.27%. With Nevo, Pembro alone, 0.06%. I mean... At the end of the day, when you look at that New England Journal article, three deaths, and you ask how many patients got the drugs, it was 17,000. So this is a very uncommon phenomenon. But because of that New England Journal article, everybody freaks out about it. Everybody's worried. Private docs are calling me saying, you know, should I get a stress echo on every patient who's getting checkpoint inhibition? Should I be getting EKGs every four weeks or every three weeks? And I say, go by the symptoms. If someone is otherwise well and has no obvious compromise, get a baseline EKG, which you would do for any patient going on any therapy anyway, and only get worried about echoes and EKGs if there are symptoms. I personally have treated at least 1,000 patients with PD-1, PD-L1 drugs, CTLA-4s, combinations. I don't think I've ever seen a legitimate case of congestive heart failure. I've seen one severe case of CHF in a patient who got debrafidib and trametinib. That's it. So I think this is a potential toxicity. I'm not poo-pooing it. It's just not common. And just finally, you can see pancreatitis that's often asymptomatic, and amylase and lipase each of 1,000. If you were a gallstone patient or an alcoholic and you had an amylase and lipase over 1,000, you'd be on the floor writhing in pain. Our patients can have an amylase of 5,000 and a lipase of 1,000, and they feel fine. So, and to be honest, often we'll either give them a brief course of steroids or ignore it. We will not continue to treat if the amylase and lipase are really elevated. But sometimes it'll linger for months and we'll just throw in the towel and say, the hell with it, we're just going to keep treating. And the FDA actually is usually okay with that. They will not make you stop for a grade 3 amylase and lipase elevation. And lastly, the rheumatologists now get more business from us because as we treat more and more patients for long periods of time, like adjuvant nivolumab or probably coming up pembrolizumab, We'll find that we're treating patients for a year or more, and a late side effect is arthritis, arthralgias, myalgias, 
I have one patient who has severe arthralgias in his shoulders and what appears to be myalgias in his arms, and he's required serious steroids to make that better. And that only came on months into treatment. So it's kind of the dirty little secret. And again, we're making, unfortunately, more business for our colleagues. We don't need to spend any time on nephritis, which is very rare and easily reversible. Uveitis, if you, the physicians in the room should remember, uveitis is often associated with colitis and Crohn's disease. Amazingly, when you get GI complications of our drugs, you also see uveitis. And last slide before the conclusion, you have to be a little careful about treating elderly patients. If you look at the performance of these drugs in those over 65 or over 75, no difference in efficacy. If you look at the incidence of side effects, no statistically significant difference. But the difference is if you're 85 years old and a little fragile and you get grade 3 colitis, you're not going to respond to steroids and symptomatic treatment as quickly or as well as someone who's 35 and in good physical shape. So you have to be very careful thinking about giving an elderly patient IPI plus NEVO and risking a 50% risk of grade 3 or 4 side effects. So that's the deal. And again, key take-home points, these are unique. These immune-related adverse events are unique to checkpoint inhibition. Um, and this is almost a new oncologic emergency. You know, we all give these lectures uh, at NYU to the fellows and the residents about how you manage an oncologic emergency, cord compression, brain meds, hyponatremia. So now we have a new one, and it's severe immune-related adverse events. And again, sometimes it gets confused. You can have myalgias and arthralgias. That can be a tumor flare, so that gets very confusing. But early recognition is the key. Good communication is the key. And having a cadre of people, your pulmonologist, your endocrinologist, your GI doc, who quickly can see the patient and deal with them is key. We have what we call a virtual IRAE clinic. I assembled a group of docs, and I asked if they would please commit to seeing the patients within a day if I called them and said they have an IRAE that needs to be evaluated quickly, and they're usually really good about it. So that's what needs to be done. When these things are done, these drugs are very safe, but it does require a learning curve. And I thank you for your attention. Um, we have time for a couple of questions. Um, so, Jeff, if you wouldn't mind. Hello. Hi. Number one, um, if I ever need it, I'd like you to be my doctor. <laughs> uh, number two, I did vote for Donald Trump. Uh, number three, when do you use IL-6? When do you use anti-IL-6? Um, IL-6 is the IL-6 antibody is generally used with cytokine release syndrome, which is with CAR T cells. There have been scattered reports of the use of IL-6 in patients with colitis who did not respond. There's been a mixed picture. It's something that merits investigation. If you look at levels of IL-6 in the bloodstream, you can't find it in these patients. You can, however, find it in patients who have cytokine release syndrome, which is why the original patient in the famous TV series the young girl who Steve Grupp was treating at Penn shows she's incredibly sick on a Wednesday, and it's like your heart's broken. And he says, ah, IL-6, tocilizumab. And then Wednesday night she gets the antibody, and it shows her sitting up in bed eating ice cream like Thursday afternoon. That's not the way it goes with our patients. It's probably not going to be very useful, but it's something that needs a proper test. And it brings up an interesting point. How the heck do you do clinical trials in these patients? We had a clinical trial for colitis of 
immediate infliximab, admittedly an expensive drug, but a good drug, versus long-term steroids. Couldn't do the trial. Because a patient who calls up at midnight on Saturday with colitis on the phone, they're going to generally get put on steroids. Or they'll get seen in an ER in Long Island. They're not going to come to, to, to my institution and meet the research nurse at midnight on Saturday because the research nurse isn't working at midnight on Saturday. It's very difficult to do trials with these patients. They are begging for trials. Good morning. Thank you. That was exceptional. I'm Grace Cordovano. I'm a private cancer patient advocate. So from my experience, many patients are reluctant and scared to report any type of ache, pain, or side effect for fear of being pulled from a trial, inconveniencing the staff, inconveniencing the doctors, or their family. How much reassuring is done and education is done to reassure them that many of these can be managed appropriately? And also, my second part of it is, is there any evidence or data showing that proactive treatment with a low-dose steroid in populations would be beneficial to prevent any of these trajectories? Two great questions. Let me do the second one first. Um, there has always been, ever since we began to see these side effects, one thought was, hmm, what if you gave, you know, 5 milligrams of prednisone every day or 10 milligrams of prednisone every other day? Would that avoid some of these? And there was a trial done back in 06, which I reported in 08, I guess, where we preventively gave budesonide, the non-absorbed steroid, to patients to avoid colitis. It's a complete bust, absolutely negative trial. So would it be a great idea to try giving low-dose steroids? No one has the gumption to do that. That's a difficult thing to do. My feeling is you'd have to be very careful how you manage that. Um, it's never been done. I don't know anyone who's even tried it. Um, and I think it would be a very difficult thing to do. My gut feeling, not based on data, is that once you are over the, once you've passed beyond a certain point and you have a certain level of immune-related adverse events, you can give a gram of steroids every day and it won't make any difference. But if it hasn't happened, if you haven't achieved that level of immune activation and you give even low-dose steroids, you may compromise the benefit. A lot of other people, again, you're in a data-free zone. A lot of other people feel the same way, so they've been reticent to do that. With respect to the first question, we have a standard way of dealing with um, introducing the drugs to patients, and I've done it so many times in my life, well over a thousand times that I could probably do it in my sleep, but after we go through the, si after we go through the schema of, the rationale for, the logistics of the treatment or a trial, after we go through the expected side effects, the, what you might get out of it, the benefit, we try to hammer home, you need to call us. And we try to make it clear that this, this urban legend that there's this absolute association between benefit and severe side effects is not really true. <clears throat> that being said, we all agree, yeah, if you get vitiligo, it's definitely associated with benefit in melanoma, but that's true with IL-2 and interferon. Um, yeah, there is a slight increased survival of, among the GI toxicity patients. I presented that at ASCO last year. Uh, in the Ipinevo group, the ones who get GI toxicity do a little bit better. But other than that, there ain't much there ain't much evidence that if you get bad side effects, you're going to do better than if you don't get side effects. So we reassure them, and we just tell them the data. And we repeat it every time they come back in that first 12-week cycle, because usually they're here either every other or every third week for 12 weeks. And that's when the education is important. If it doesn't sink in by week 12, it ain't going to sink in. So that's how we deal with it. Well, thank you very much. Um, that was really very enlightening. The annual Immuno-Oncology 360 Conference, 
bridges clinical, scientific, and business developments in I.O. to provide a genuine 360-degree perspective so as a community we can drive faster advancements to eradicate cancer. For more information about the event, visit www.io360summit.com. Thanks for listening.